0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact the cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode. I'm exploring Michael Haneke's 2012 film Amour. It won the Palme d'Or when it was released along with many other awards. It's about George and Anne, an elderly couple who live in Paris and who have their lives turned upside down after Anne suffers a stroke. This is a deeply devastating film and it's not easy to talk about, but I was drawn to it because some of the subject matter is very personal for me and I'll be talking about that in this episode. For over a year now, my mom has been struggling with her health and I've become a caregiver for her. I talk about the difficult experience of caring for someone and watching them suffer. In many ways, I'm using a more as a way to delve into things that I've been having trouble facing or even speaking about for a long time now. I hope that by sharing my experience, I can help others or just make them feel less alone. If you're listening, and you're in a similar position as me, I hope this episode reaches you and offers you some comfort. This episode contains major spoilers, so please be aware of that. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com herhead and films for more information. That's P A T R E O ncom herhead and films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars, tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode, so I won't ramble anymore. Here's my episode about Michael Hanukkah's Amour. This is going to be a really, really deeply personal episode. So if there's any new listeners right now, this is not your typical film podcast. That's not what I tend to do. <laughs> what I really do at times is I kind of use films as a way to process emotions, experiences in my life, and I talk about things that I'm going through, things I have been through, and so for me, film is deeply personal. Just when I think that I've already made my most personal episode, because I feel like I say this a lot, this one's gonna be very personal. I will warn you now, it will probably be emotional. I will probably end up crying several times as I talk about these things because that's just who I am and I'm starting to embrace that about myself. I'm kind of in this place in my life where it's like, yeah, I'm emotional, I'm soft, I'm tender. I'm gonna hold on to that as long as I can. And sometimes I feel like I'm in this battle to hold on to my vulnerability. It doesn't mean that I walk around crying 24-7 or that I go around to everybody and overshare and tell them everything. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes I do feel like a walking wound. I do feel profoundly raw. I do feel fragile, but usually... I bring that emotion to this podcast or I bring it to other art that I engage with. If I'm reading a poem or I'm listening to music or just when I'm by myself and I just feel all my emotions, yeah, I'm someone who feels deeply. I'm someone who cares. I'm someone who allows emotion into my life. I feel things for people. I can feel very deeply for people and it's not always returned or reciprocated, but I allow myself to feel It comes with pain and suffering, of course, but I would rather feel and I would rather be open and I would rather reach out and try to connect and be soft and be tender and be vulnerable and take the consequences of that than to be the opposite. Because I have been through a lot in my life and I'm going to talk about all of it in this episode. I've been through a lot. Doesn't mean I've been through the worst things ever. I try to take those experiences and I share them here on this podcast podcast, and I try to create a space where emotion can be explored. Feeling can be explored. I'm very connected to my feelings and my emotions and I'm not ashamed of that. I mean, maybe sometimes I am or sometimes I wish I could be more detached. I could be more disconnected, but that's not who I am. I think in the past I was more like that. I actually think as I've gotten older and I've just been through more, I think I've softened a lot and like I've just become more tender as time goes on. That's just who I am and I'm trying to embrace it and use it because sometimes those emotions can overwhelm me, scare me. My own intensity can scare me and frighten me. The intensity of what I feel at times. I think for me the big thing is to figure out how to channel it, how to use it, how to deal with it I guess better because my emotions can get really frightening you know, how strong they can be inside of me and the way they churn, but this podcast is one outlet for them, (laughs) and I write in a diary and stuff like that. I talk to people. I have some really great friends who I talk to a lot, and I can share some of that. um, I can share some of that emotionality, I guess, or like that excessiveness that I have about me, but This is going to be a personal episode. I feel in a way, I feel very raw as I record this episode. I've just been really raw lately and emotional and I feel kind of broken open. That's the place that I'm going to speak from. I think I'm more, I mean, I haven't seen this film for a decade probably. I watched it probably, I mean, it came out in 2012. I probably saw it that year or the next year. This film did win a lot of awards. It got a lot of accolades. I am a Michael Haneke super fan. I love, love, love Michael Haneke. I think I would say he's one of my favorite modern directors, if not my favorite. I don't know. I love him. I'm not really tapped into a lot of recent films or anything like that. Like, I'm not the kind of person that's watching all the new releases and stuff like that. That is not me. And on this podcast, I do cover some contemporary films, Something like Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank comes to mind. Or Joachim Trier's Oslo, August 31st. The Dardan Brothers, Two Days, One Night. I love the Dardan Brothers. So, Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichardt. So, I have certainly covered films from the last 10, 15 years. And I do watch contemporary film, right? I'm just not as plugged into it as a lot of other people are. Michael Haneke is just... I think he's a living legend. I think he's a master. I just, I already have an episode about one of his films called The Piano Teacher. That's probably my favorite by him. But this one and Funny Games and Caché. Why don't people talk about Caché more? I really want to go back to Caché. I don't know if I'd ever do an episode about it. But that film is deeply haunting. I still have more of his work to see, for sure. I want to see Code Unknown, the The seventh. Seventh Continent. Like, there's all kinds of Hanukkah that I still need to watch, and he's just a magnificent director for me. I I love and adore him because of the intensity of his work. Like, I'm intense, and I like intense films. That's what I go to film for. I want to feel. I want to think, yes, but more than anything, I want to feel, and I want to be engaged, and I just love the intensity of his work, and I do think he's a modern master. So, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this film for close to a decade, and I think it is a masterpiece. I can't even identify a flaw with it, to be honest with you. I think it is one of the greatest films of the last 10 years, I guess, or of the 2010s. It just has that kind of power to it, and so I will be going into so many things about this film. It, I just can't identify anything wrong with it. I just can't. (laughs) So, I mean, the ending may be controversial. I don't know what the consensus is about the ending. I think it's very powerful, and I will be talking about it, obviously. But this film hit me so hard, and I'm going to go into that. But first, the cast. We have Jean-Louis Trentignon as George. We have Emmanuel Riva as Anne. We have Isabel Huper as Ava. George and Anne are an elderly couple. They live in Paris. Anne ends up having a stroke, and life really changes after that. This film is about so many things. Like, yeah, it's about love. That's the title. Um, It's one of Hanukkah's more tender films, I think, but still incredibly brutal and incredibly intense, like most of his work is. But it's also about the deterioration of the body. It's about watching somebody suffer, and Hanukkah had personal experience with this. I would say this is also one of his most, if not his most personal film, because he said in interviews that he had an aunt who suffered some kind of illness, and she was like in her 90s, I think. Her health was going downhill, and she didn't want to live anymore, and she asked him to kill her to assist her in dying. And he said, no, I can't do that. I would get in trouble because I think he would inherit money from her and stuff. He refused to do it. And while he was at a film festival, she went through with it. I think she had tried to attempt suicide before and she was not successful. But then when he was at that film festival, she went through with it and she was successful and she killed herself. Hanukkah, in making this film, was trying to process that experience. And I think he was also, he said this in interviews, that he wanted to explore the idea of what does it mean, what is it like to watch somebody you love suffer? And I think he said in an interview, I got the blu ray of a more and I do recommend the Blu-ray because there's two things in it. There's an interview that Hanukkah did and there's a featurette that was really fascinating to watch, like a behind-the-scenes making of a more. And you saw the actors on set doing certain scenes that ended up in the film. Um, there are some interviews with Trenton and, and Riva, Isabel Hubert. And so I absolutely recommend that Blu-ray. And so I think in in that featurette, Hanika said that like even worse than you yourself, you know, being in physical pain is to watch somebody you love being pain. And so that is the core of the film, is like, what is it like to witness that, to live that, to be in the middle of that? And that has become my life recently, and I'm going to talk about that. So this was a deeply personal film for him. The apartment is really fascinating. I just wanted to give a few details about it before I got into the film. That apartment that you see um, in the movie was created on a, in a studio, like on a soundstage. It was constructed meticulously, it's based on the apartment that Hanukkah's parents had in Vienna. Every detail was mapped out in that apartment from the, the bookcases, the paintings that were on the wall, how the books were um, arranged on the shelves. I think they said they alphabetized them possibly. And even the the creaking of the floors, he was so meticulous about every detail of that apartment that they created that he even made sure that the floors creaked in the right way. This is the world that George and Anne inhabit, and it was really crucial. They were music teachers, I think. They've been obviously married for many decades, and it's like this inner world, this world that they've created. And the apartment shows the traces of their lives, like you know the paintings and the photographs and the, the furniture and the bookshelves and everything it's like this entire world of this elderly couple and he really I think did such a great job with that so I just wanted to give a little bit of information but most of this episode is just gonna be me talking about the film and my feelings I am in my feelings about this film and how I connect to it I specifically chose to talk about this for a reason because of circumstances in my life. And that is often what will draw me to certain films. It's important to me to always cover films that I feel a personal connection to. There are sometimes people will recommend films to me like, oh, I wish you'd cover this, or I wish you'd cover that. And I appreciate that. And I understand that people want to hear my thoughts about things. I mean, that's a real privilege and honor that people care what I have to say about something. But I don't have something to say about every single film that I watch. I watch all kinds of different things, and I'm very eclectic (laughs) and idiosyncratic in the types of films I watch, and I may love and adore a film and never do an episode about it because I don't have anything of my own to contribute about that film. So I'm very careful about films that I choose and that I have something to say about them. And they may not always be art house. Sometimes it's a romantic comedy. Sometimes it's, you know, a childhood film or it's a costume drama. I've covered all kinds of things. But the thing that guides me is, what is my relationship to this film? What is my personal feeling about it? And what do I have to say about it? How does it connect to me and to my life? And more called to me. Like, I just, one day, it just out of the blue came to me. Like, I have to cover more. I just have to. I have to go back to this film. It's been a decade. And so I decided I'm going to do a Michael Haneke month on the podcast. I'm going to be doing an episode about funny games. That will be so much fun. <laughs> Michael Hanukkah is just so damn intense, but brilliant. I love his work. But I do think that as I'm going back to Hanukkah right now, I'm probably gonna have to sprinkle in some musicals and some Eric Romare <laughs> and like some some lighter, uh, more beautiful films, more life-affirming films as I'm watching the Hanukkah, because this is heavy stuff. Some of this is brutal, but my life is very different than when I first saw this film. I saw it probably, like I said, 2012-2013. I would have been in college, and that was around the time I was starting to become a cinephile, and I loved Hanukkah. I had seen The Piano Teacher pretty early. I didn't become a cinephile until around 2011. I was in my early 20s. I was in college, and I just started to fall in love with like art house cinema and world cinema. And Hanika was a very early director that I fell in love with. Others would include Ingmar Bergman, obviously, Andre Tarkovsky, Agnes Varda, and Krzysztof Kishlovsky. Those are just a few others that I really fell in love with early on. So Hanika just was amazing to me, and Bresson. Robert Bresson. Hanukkah loves Bresson, and that doesn't surprise me at all. So my life was really different, and so I think it's interesting how a film can take on new relevance and resonance in your life as you get older, as you go through experiences. What I'm going to be talking about in this episode is my mom. And what's happening with her and her health. And so back then, almost 10 years ago, my mom was healthy. She was um, in a better place. We didn't know what was coming. We never do know what's coming, do we? Even now, I don't know what tomorrow or next week holds. I try to have hope, you know, that like good things might happen. But it often does feel like only pain ends up in my life, unfortunately, and I've tried to get more into mindfulness and meditation and really grounding myself in the now, in today, into this moment, because this is all you have. All you have is today, and I can't think about next week. I can't think about next month. I'm just trying to, like, get through today, and that's sort of the mentality that I've taken on, particularly since the pandemic started, since my mom's health started to decline, and And those two things coincided. Those two things really collided. That she had a bad fall that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Like a a day before 2020 started. It was like very late 2019. And so those two things really slammed into me at the same time. And I've not been the same since. And it's been intense. I haven't been handling it well, if I'm being honest. I'm doing this episode to share what I'm going through, doing it to use my experiences to reach out to others and to possibly articulate an experience that some of you who are listening can relate to, which is becoming a caregiver. For somebody, for a relative, for a parent, for a spouse. Being a caregiver, becoming one is a complicated thing. It comes with a lot of messy emotions. And so maybe someone listening will maybe hear their story. Or hear something about their story represented. Because I want to be honest about it. And I don't think it gets talked about a whole lot. But we do have an aging population of, like, the boomers, right, here in the U.S. And I do think more and more people are becoming caregivers for, like, elderly parents. My mom's not elderly. She just turned 60, like, this year. And I'm 31. I'm about to turn 30. I'll be 32, like, in about a week. So I might as well just say I'm 32. So I wouldn't say I'm the norm, necessarily. Usually it's maybe people in their 40s taking care of elderly parents. But... This is my story, and I think all kinds of people have become caregivers, no matter their age. I wanted to talk about it. I needed to talk about it because I've been living it for over a year now, and it has destabilized me. You know, it's been devastating and traumatic, and most days I just feel like I am past my limits, you know, and life has become unbearable at times, and I feel a lot of pain in my life. I haven't been handling it the best at times. Like, really? And I do feel sometimes like I'm unraveling or I'm like in the middle of a nervous breakdown and thank God I have some really amazing friends and some really great connections and that's what has like saved me and carried me through it is like these really great people that I've met who I can talk to, who I can be myself with, that I can just share as much as I need to and they are there for me and they show up for me and they care about me and they have shown to me what unconditional love and support is and I'm just so grateful that I have that in my life. I don't know how I would have survived. So in late December 2019 my mom fell in our house and she broke her left shoulder I think. Um, She struggled with her knees for many years and so her ability to walk was getting gradually worse and worse and that's the reason that she fell because she's been she was struggling to walk at the time but it's gotten much worse now so she broke her shoulder and and she had surgery done she had broken it like in several places she was in a lot of pain she didn't have insurance at the time and so After the surgery, she really didn't get like the aftercare that she needed for her shoulder. She wasn't able to get like physical therapy for it. And so it hasn't healed very well and she can't even use her arm a lot honestly, and her knees have gotten even worse. Um, She most likely has arthritis, like really bad arthritis. We've taken her to some doctors, but we don't have like a a firm diagnosis. It might be osteoarthritis. We're not quite sure at the moment. It's debilitated her, basically. Like she has very limited mobility. She cannot walk well. And so I've basically become like a caregiver and I have to physically take care of her on a daily basis. It's been intense and brutal. The fall was basically like a catalyst for the decline of her health over the past year and a half. And she's really almost bedridden. You know, there's a lot of stuff that she cannot, she just cannot do for herself. And I have to do those things. So it's been devastating and everything. Her care doing house chores, working a job, all of that's fallen on me for the most part. I do live with her and her husband and he works outside the house. I'm able to work from home and to take care of her. A lot of it has fallen on me. There's a lot that I have to do, you know, from the moment I wake up. (laughs) There's just a lot and I'm pretty much, you know, on my own and alone a lot of the time, and it's really difficult. I feel really isolated and stuff. So my father died in 2006 when I was 16 years old, and he had his own health issues. His health was declining for several years before he passed away. Watching this happen to my mom, who's like my best friend. I'm really close to my mom, and we got so close because of my dad's death. I've always lived with her. I've always been with her since he passed away, um, especially, and so we just became really, really close and depended on each other, and I don't think I would have even survived my dad's death without her. It was just so catastrophic and devastating and traumatic to lose him, and I'm still still working through and struggling with that loss. I talk about it a lot on this podcast. Longtime listeners know that it is an open festering wound for me that my dad died when I was a teenager. It blew a hole in my heart and in my life that I've never recovered from. I watched him suffer I watched his health go downhill and now in my early 30s I'm watching this something similar happen to my mom and it just brings up terrible memories of what happened to my dad. What's weird is that I have audio of her fall, which is strange. I was doing like a voice memo. I used to do voice memos to remind me like of stuff that I wanted to talk about on the podcast and right as I was doing a voice memo one night the night that she fell, it she fell while I was recording the voice memo. And so I still have audio of like her falling, her yelling out in pain. It's kind of eerie to have that, um, to to have that fall recorded. It's been such a devastating event in our lives. It was a terrifying moment. Just absolutely terrifying when it happened. She's lucky that she didn't hit her head, you know, that something worse didn't happen, that it was just her shoulder, right? But it was terrifying when it happened. In a lot of ways, I'm not even able to truly confront what's happening right now, how traumatic it is, how painful, because I'm living it. And I have to survive it. And I have to, like, get up every day and keep going and show up for my mom and be there for her. But it is traumatic. It absolutely is. You know, every day I'm bearing witness her suffering. And that causes me suffering in return. The physical toll of it is hard. It's hard to physically take care of another person. I struggle with like my own health issues, both physical and mental. So that takes, it takes a toll on me and just on my body. Everything that I have to do and everything I'm carrying takes an emotional toll, a physical toll. I'm suffering. watching her suffer. That's the thing. You're both suffering. Both Anne and George in the film are suffering. He's witnessing it and she's physically experiencing it, but both people are feeling it. And I certainly am. And in a lot of ways, this film has made me confront something that I have been trying to avoid. I do think in the last year and a half, I've been doing a lot to escape what was happening and for a while I couldn't even accept that it was happening. It's like I kind of had to escape it through some kind of like dream world or you know through fantasy or something like that because I tend to have trouble accepting reality to be honest. I think when your reality becomes so painful or it becomes unbearable you look for these like magic doors out of it And for me, that's usually been art, like it's usually been films or books or something like that. I live a lot in my mind, so this film really has forced me to confront it, you know, and to look at it and to finally talk about it. I haven't talked about it in depth yet on an episode, and so I felt like I really needed to do that through this film. It's hard to talk about being a caregiver because it's like, how do you talk about it without some sounding really ungrateful or callous, right? I love my mom. I'm the one who should be taking care of her. Like, I love her. I'm her daughter. I want to be there for my mom. I want to take care of her. I know she wants that, but it is hard to take care of another person. And it does take a toll on you. It's hard to be almost 32, and this is my life, of watching someone I love suffer. I'd like to be in my early 30s really living it up or something. You know, I'd like to be falling in love or having a family or traveling the world. Like I'd love to be using these years really living. And instead, I'm going through a lot of trauma. And I'm existing. I'm surviving. I don't really have a life. The thing about when you become a caregiver is that your own needs take a backseat. You don't have needs anymore. And they're not going to be met. You don't have individuality. Everything revolves around the person you're taking care of. And so your needs and and your life just kind of don't exist anymore. And it's, you get burnt out, you get resentful, you get bitter, you get angry. And I think that's normal, right? Like you struggle, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're worn down, you're beaten down. That's, That's a painful reality. You sacrifice a lot you know, it's a lot on your mind and your body and your soul. While I love my mother and I want to be there for her and I want to take care of her, I wish to God I was like healthier and I wish like I had it together and that I could really be everything that she needs. I'm not always like that. You know, I'm doing my best and some days I'm crawling. I feel selfish and really ashamed or terrible or guilty to even admit these things, to even say how hard it is, to say how much of a toll it takes on me, to say that I get resentful, to say that I get angry, particularly as a woman, the way that we're socialized. I feel bad even admitting these things. But this is the reality of what I feel. I will be talking about it throughout as I talk about the film, like my different experiences. But life is hard right now. And I don't say this to get pity from people. I don't say this like, woe is me. This isn't like a competition. This isn't a contest. You know, I'm not out here saying, oh yeah, my life is worse than everybody else's. I don't compare Because you can't compare your life to somebody else's. What I try to do is to take my experiences and let it make me more empathetic for other people's experiences. And it's not about telling somebody, oh, well, because you're not a caregiver, you don't know what real suffering is or something like that. This is my reality. This is my life. I'm just doing my best to get through it like day by day and to make sure that I'm taking care of my mom and that I'm getting her through and that I'm helping her. But I cannot deny the immense and profound toll that it's taken on me. And I am not who I was before this. I'm not who I was before the pandemic. And I'm not who I was before my mom's health started to decline. I will never go back to that person. I will never be her. The struggle for me is just to make sure that I don't let these experiences destroy me, harden me, and make me a really terrible person. <laughs> I don't want to be that. I don't want to. I'm, I'm trying to hold on to myself as much as I can. I wanted to talk a bit about why I'm drawn to Hanukkah and to films like this that are so devastating and emotionally brutal. I think that I process a lot of emotion through cinema. I absolutely go to cinema for an emotional experience and I think people go to it for different reasons and for multiple reasons at the same time. So there are some people who might go for an aesthetic experience for just the way a film looks. Some people might want to be intellectually engaged. Other people might want their emotions emotions engaged. And you might want all of that at once, right? You don't have to choose necessarily. But for me, film is always emotional. And I always connect it to my life and my perspective and my subjectivity. I think that intense films like this by Hanukkah or Bergman comes to mind. They give me like a catharsis that tends to elude me in everyday life. I do think that films, like, it can give they can give me a language, a door into a particular issue. And for me, a more, it provides the language to talk about being a caregiver, provides the language to talk about what it's like to live in this reality of watching someone I deeply love suffer and struggle every single day. I think it also articulates the experience of your body deteriorating and how horrific and terrifying that is too. So it's all kinds of things that are going on in the film, I think. I feel like Hanukkah gets this really bad rap- bad reputation as being cold and bleak. Yeah, life is bleak. And I think that Hanukkah shows it. He just simply shows it. Life is agonizing at times. Horrible things happen to us. But we shouldn't look away from those things. And I think that Hanukkah is a deeply humane director. I think there is such humanity in his work. And I think you see it on display with amour. And I don't think that we should look away from sickness or violence or any of the difficult subjects that appear in Hanukkah's work. His films are devastating, but they are worth watching. They're important to watch because they make us feel he makes me feel. That's what Hanukkah does. And not in a sentimental or melodramatic way. He's not a melodramatic director at all. Um, He's much closer to Bresson, right? Where it's like stripped down and um, stuff like that. But he makes you feel. And Bresson makes you feel too. I feel for Anne and George. I see my struggle and my life in theirs. And that's what film should do. That's what film can do. That's what it should do for me personally. That's what I want it to do. I want films to give us the human condition. To reveal human fragility and human struggle. Show us the truth. Make us stare it in the face. Make us feel what we numb ourselves to. You're not numb while you're watching More* or Funny Games or The Piano Teacher. You're in the pain. You're in the blood you're in the brutal reality and that's where he takes us. Also, uh, I'm probably drawn to Hanukkah and films that are more brutal or intense or bleak. I kind of call it brutal cinema. That's sort of the the phrase I've come up with is like brutal cinema. Art house cinema that looks at violence. Sometimes they can be sexually graphic, sexually explicit. Sometimes they can be about war and, and just really extreme experiences in life. I'm just very drawn to films like that. Something comes that comes to mind is like Steve McQueen's Shame and his film Hunger. Bergman's Cries and Whispers. I think that's a really brutal film. Probably the most brutal film I've ever seen is Elam Klimov's Come and See, which is a war film. I'm drawn to those films and I tend to watch them. Cronenberg's Crash. That one was really brutal recently. I saw that a few months ago. But, you know, maybe I'm more comfortable with suffering. I think that's why I'm drawn to these films as well, is that I'm more comfortable with suffering. And maybe that's a sad reality of my life. I'm at home in the anguish. I'm familiar with grief. I'm I'm inured to the horrible. That's what I know. I know my wounds. I know my suffering. It's almost all I've known for a long time loneliness and loss and struggle and pain, but I'm never used to it. It still shocks me that there are new levels of pain that I can feel and discover. New things that bring me to my knees, like watching my mom suffer. That was something that I didn't know that I could really experience. So I don't think we should ever get used to suffering. I think it should always appall us It should always stun us because if it doesn't, then we allow it to continue. We should always be disgusted by suffering. If we're ever going to change it or reduce it, we have to feel something about it. We have to be disgusted by it. We should never see other human beings suffer, either in real life or on film, and just shrug our shoulders or worst of all, justify it. We're supposed to feel for Anne as she loses her health. And as her body betrays her. We're supposed to feel that as something deeply devastating and offensive and just horrible. And if you don't feel something as you watch a Hanukkah film, you need to reevaluate your life (laughs) and you need to sit with that and you need to think about it. If you don't feel something when you watch his films, Because I do think more than anything, he wants you to feel. And there was a great interview with Bresson that I saw a while back. And the screenshot, it's all, it floats around the internet where he says he would rather people feel a film before they understand it or something like that. And I agree with that. And I feel like with Hanukkah, that happens. Like you, you should feel something when you watch a Hanukkah film. And if you don't... (laughs) You may need some help. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. Like, his work is supposed to make you feel. In so many of Hanukkah's films, he explores the brutality of life in different ways. With Funny Games, the threat is external through these two young men who terrorize a family. For more, the threat is internal. It is within the mortal body that breaks down and deteriorates. There's this part, this early part in the film where Anne's kind of scared of people breaking into the apartment, but and I think this is before she has her stroke. Little does she know that that's her least concern. Nothing is going to invade the house from outside. The real danger, and this is what makes the film almost like a horror film to me, the real danger is within her own flesh. And to me, that is the most terrifying thing. It's what I've known my entire life. First, as I watched my father's health decline and eventually he died. And now as I watch my mother's health decline, it's traumatizing. And it affects my own health. It affects my body. It affects my mind. Then my health isn't good because I'm going through all these things that are so difficult. This is really like a rare film about suffering and also about old age. And you don't see that a lot. Like we don't see a lot of films about like elderly people. I did want to speak a moment about the actors and the performances. I love Jean-Louis Trentignon. He's like an iconic French actor. He was in Kieślowski's Three Colors Red, My Night at Malds. He has a storied career and he at first didn't want to do the film because he hasn't done he had not done a film for like 15 years. But Hanukkah really talked him into it. And I think Hanukkah wrote the role with Trentignon in mind. He absolutely wanted him as the actor. With Emmanuel Riva, she's really best known for being in... Hiroshima Manamor. I have an episode about Hiroshima Manamor, but I did it like really early in my, in the podcast, and I don't know if the quality is that good or not. I was still finding my way and still finding my voice at that time. I love her in that film. I love that film. (laughs) It's a powerful, powerful film. It took longer for Hanukkah to find Reva. He didn't have a particular actress in mind. And so he auditioned a lot and she just stood out and he wanted to have her. And I think, of course, her performance is just devastating, visceral, heartbreaking. It was difficult for her to do the performance. She did struggle with it. Like physically, she ended up sleeping on the set. She said that the commute was just too much on her. And so they would uh, set up the bed for her and everything. And she just slept on the set at night instead of making the commute back home. And also just emotionally, she struggled with it. She said it was just really devastating and bleak. And it was heavy. The set was not heavy. Like Hanukkah's sets don't tend to be very heavy. Like they tend to be like light. He's very professional, you know, but the material was difficult for her and I just think both of these actors are such powerful artists, you know, and like what they bring to their roles and what they bring to the film, the way they make this couple so real to you. And of course, Isabel Hubert. Like, do I even have to say anything? Brilliant. Brilliant. Always. But I love the way Trenton and, and Riva are together. You know, there's so many quiet moments between this couple. Like, they eat breakfast in the kitchen, or when he's doing physical therapy with her and lifting her leg up, and when he's helping her from the wheelchair into the regular chair, um, helping her get up from the toilet. When they're sitting together reading, you know, there's all these, like, intimate moments that they have with each other, and you feel the love, you feel the connection between the two of them, and it does feel like this couple's been together just for decades, right? I wanted to linger on how this film is titled Amor. It's titled With Love. Hanukkah did that for a reason. He was making a film about love. Even though the film is about suffering, it's about love and watching someone you love suffer. And I've thought about love a lot in the past year or so. What it is, how it's shown. And the thing is, is that when you become a caregiver, your life changes so drastically. And really, your love is something that you can't just say anymore. You have to show it. You have to live it. You have to take care of another person. What you're doing is an act of love. It is a way of showing love. If you're able to physically, right? And it's not easy. It's exhausting. It's a sacrifice. And love is a sacrifice at times. I have to take care of my mom every day. I have to get up and do that. I'm sure she would do the same for me. You know, if it was reversed. She relies on me for her daily needs. I love her. And so... I do that. It takes a toll on me and I still do it. It's draining and backbreaking and I still do it because I love her and I want to be there for her. I don't have a choice. I think when you love somebody and you love them unconditionally, sometimes this is part of it. And that's what George chooses to do, is that he chooses to be there with her and to take that on. And he does have some help with nurses, but at first he tries to do it on his own. He... Gets her up off the toilet, like I said. He moves her from the wheelchair into the regular chair. He gets her up out of bed. He feeds her. All kinds of stuff that he's doing in the film. And that is love. That is love. You're not just saying it anymore. You're doing it. You're showing it. He helps her walk at one point. He washes her hair. That scene of him helping her walk is pretty intense. Like she's really struggling with it after she has the stroke and she's paralyzed on one side of her body. She's really struggling to move her body and he's, he's there with her. He's also there for her emotionally. You know, the human body can be so vulnerable and fragile. Like we can't protect it. We can't always protect the ones we love. And there is no more helpless feeling than that, that you cannot protect the people that you love, whether they have cancer or they get in a car accident or they are gradually debilitated by a disease or they have a stroke or something like that. We are just powerless against this thing, this force that comes along and diminishes our body's time, right? Time and illness, these forces that take our lives that take away the precious people that we love. And it can do serious mental damage to you to watch it and to see it and to live it with the other person who is suffering through it as well. And I think it's interesting how Hanukkah begins with the death. We see Anne in bed with the flowers and he's put a dress on her. And so immediately you're interested in, well, what's happened here? Like, why is this woman in the bed like this? So I think it's interesting that from the beginning, we know that Anne is going to die in some way. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He easily could have started the film when Anne and George are at the concert, but he wanted, he used that device that, so from the beginning, we know that she's gonna die and something's gonna happen, but we don't quite know who did it what happened, any of that, but it keeps you watching, I think. It creates a strange suspense, in a way, of like, what's gonna happen, and how how is all this gonna um, unfold, and the film is very slow, in a way, and very gradual, but relentless. It's over two hours long, and it unfolds in this very gradual way, and at first, when she has the stroke, you think, oh, okay, it'll be all right. You know, he'll be able to manage it. It doesn't seem too bad. They seem kind of hopeful, but Hanukkah does not let us off the hook. It's like he's just meticulously building it and building it and building it. Not just one stroke, two strokes and paralysis and her body starts to break down and things start to get very dark as the film goes on. We're not given much of a reprieve. It's a heavy film. It's It's a deep, difficult film, but I think we should create space in our lives for films like this. I mean, I watch more than the average person because like I said, I'm drawn to the intensity of these films. But I do think that these, it's a worthwhile film. I know it's heavy. I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult, but it's powerful and it's moving. And as I said earlier with The Apartment, it really shows the life of these two people, the life that they've led together. I thought it was interesting how the apartment is a place of life that is steadily transformed into a space of decay, and eventually death. In the end, it becomes like a tomb, really. A tomb for these two people. But particularly for Anne when we see her at the beginning. It's her tomb. That's what that room becomes for her. The apartment was once this place where they created their own world. And that world is destroyed by Anne's Stroke. And, and by what happens to her. I thought it was interesting how the film shows the different struggles of Anne and George, because they are going through different things, right? For him, he's suffering because he's watching her suffer. He's more passive, on the sidelines, helpless, impotent. And with her, she's the one who is suffering. So for her, it's physical, it's material, it's in her body. You know, she's the one having to really live it. She has to deal with the pain of that and also the psychological pain where she feels like she's a burden. You know, that she's become a burden on him. And at one point she does tell George there's no point in going on living. So even from the beginning she expresses a desire to not be alive anymore. And of course that connects to the ending in a lot of ways that She makes it clear she doesn't really want to be alive now that her body is in such a bad state and she can't do the things that she used to do. She makes that clear and she also makes it clear she doesn't want to go back to the hospital. She wants to be home. She wants to be in the apartment. And George, at first, has a hard time accepting that when she says it. Like, that she doesn't want to go on living. You know, he's, he doesn't want to accept it or believe that that's what she feels. But as things get progressively worse for her, and he sees what's happening to her, it becomes clear that it's not sustainable. What kind of quality of life is she having at this point? and she's really struggling. He has to confront that. I wanted to talk about the nightmare that George has. It's very haunting and eerie. At first, we don't even know that it's a dream. He's brushing his teeth, and he goes to the door after the bell rings. He thinks someone's there, but no one is, and he walks out into the hallway of the apartment, and he keeps walking until he's um, standing in water. The hallway has flooded, and then all of a sudden, this hand clamps over his mouth and he screams. And we see him waking up and he's yelling. It frightens Anne. And I think this is doing several things. I found this really compelling and a fascinating part of the film. And it's like a truly terrifying moment. Like to me, it almost becomes like a horror film for a minute. Like your mainstream kind of horror film in a way. Certainly, it's an ominous foreshadowing of the end of the film when he suffocates Anne. Only in that nightmare, it's him being suffocated. The hand is closing over his mouth, over his face, right? And second, I think the nightmare is really about his fears and his anxieties. This resonated with me deeply because I still have nightmares of my mom falling. I think just a week or two ago, I had like a really bad nightmare and I really believed that she had fallen again and it was terrifying to me. It made me realize that I really do live with this. Like this terror that she's gonna fall again and that it could be worse this time, and what could happen, and I don't want her to be in more pain. These nightmares are very visceral for me, and terrifying. Like, I feel shaken when I wake up. I feel grateful that she has not fallen again. I realized through that dream what her fall has done to me, and the amount of fear and anxiety that I live with about it that I don't know from one day to the next what could happen. As a caregiver, you do live with that constant worry of what could happen to your loved one. And each day can be filled with a lot of dread and fear and anxiety. And you're just carrying so much on your shoulders. There's one scene in the film that's always stayed with me. It's really at the halfway point of the film. I think it's interesting that it's right in the middle. It's sort of a uplifting scene a little bit. Like it's a nice tender scene. And it's when Anne is looking through a photo album. And she says, it's beautiful. And George asks her, what? And she responds, life. So she's talking about her life. She's looking at these photo albums with pictures of her. Her as a child and photos of George and Ava. She's remembering her life. I think that that scene is very universal. And it's just a tender moment in a relentlessly brutal film. It's like a chink of light in the darkness. And it's an acknowledgement that before all the pain... There was this life of beauty that she had with George and all these decades that they got to be together and that they got to love each other. I'm fascinated by couples who end up together in old age like that and people who have really been together for decades and decades. And I think it's beautiful personally, but particularly because we live in a world today that's just kind of all about hookup culture and everybody's afraid of commitment (laughs) And people have a hard time being in relationships. People have a hard time finding unconditional love. Finding love that lasts. I think a lot of people are kind of addicted to the early stages of a relationship. The honeymoon phase where the endorphins are going and everything's new and exciting, right? And that's what we're kind of obsessed with in films and TV shows is like love as something like technicolor or like a dream or a fantasy. And eventually that's going to wear off. You can't live in that intensity every day of your life with somebody. At some point, you've got to like calm down and just read books together on the Couch or something. You're not going to live some exciting life with someone 24 7 or something out of like a musical. You know, it doesn't work that way. You know, at some point life is going to settle down and it, I guess it's going to be boring or it's going to be mundane. We don't talk enough about compatibility, commitment connection. Unconditional love. Being there for each other through like really hard things. Being supportive. We don't see films about the real experience of long-term love long-term relationships right what is a healthy relationship why don't we see enough models of that instead we see a lot of like tumultuous relationships with a lot of turmoil and toxicity but what about like a healthy long-term relationship so i love seeing an elderly couple who have been together for decades and they've gone through stuff together and they've worked on their problems And they unconditionally love each other and they're really there for each other. That's the kind of relationship I want. You know, I want something gentle and beautiful and tender and unconditional. And it's really hard to find that in the world, unfortunately. To find people who can love. I think it's about can you love? And I think a lot of people don't know what love is. They think it's sex. Or they think it's obsession. And I'm not saying that I don't fall prey to that stuff. I'm not saying I'm above any of this. But I do think that I would prefer like something that Anne and George have. Something steady and stable and long-term and loving. Just, you know, beautiful and tender and unconditional. I just think it's beautiful, that relationship. So she's looking at these photos and thinking about her life, and she sees beauty in that life. The thing is, is that I can't look at photos of the past anymore. I stay away from it. It's too painful. I can't look at pictures of my dad. And now I can't really look at pictures of my mom either from just a few years ago when she... Had her life, she was so much happier and she was not suffering the way that she is now. And she's had so much taken from her and she's lost so much. She's lost a lot of people. She's had her health taken away from her and her independence and her freedom and her mobility. She's had a lot taken away from her. I've had a lot taken away. And so I can't even really take comfort in the good times or the nice memories because they hurt too much. Nostalgia can really wound me now, and I try to be careful with it. I try not to get too lost in nostalgia, except maybe if it's like 90s music. Some of you may know, I love the 90s music. All of it. 90s rock, R&B, pop, everything. (laughs) All the female singer-songwriters. I love 90s music. So yeah, life is beautiful, but it also ends, and it's also painful. You know, it's everything all at once. And unfortunately, after that scene with the photo albums, the second half of the film kicks in and it's brutal. It's brutal. And it's really Anne's decline and how things really start to fall apart for this couple. And it's just heartbreaking as her condition starts to worsen. She has a second stroke. Her paralysis gets worse. She's bedridden. She has to wear diapers They have to bring in nurses for her now. So things are getting progressively worse for her, unfortunately. There's a very poignant scene that I found very moving where we see Anne at the piano and we think, oh, we've gone back in time. Anne is playing the piano because she is a music teacher. She was a music teacher. I think they both were. And earlier in the film, a student had come to the house and had played Beethoven uh, one of his bagatelles. The soundtrack for this film is really great. I've been listening to it uh, lately on Spotify. I love the classical music that is in Hanukkah's films, particularly this one and The Piano Teacher. I tend to go back to that. Hanukkah loves music. He's a big, big music fan, it sounds like, and he loves the classical stuff. Bach, Beethoven, all of that. So we see her at the piano, but we soon realize that it's George imagining her as he listens to a CD of piano music. And like I said earlier, a student had come over and played some of the Beethoven. The student had, the former student of Anne, had asked her, like, what happened, why she was paralyzed, and she didn't want to talk about it. It's... Kind of a scene where she just, she doesn't want to go there. She has her pride. And it's really beautiful to see her sitting at that piano. And to see George imagining her at the piano as he's listening to this music. He's remembering her as she was before the stroke. And there is such a look of sorrow on his face. You can almost feel it physically in your chest. Like what he's conveying on his face. We see what Anne has lost the ability to play the music that she so dearly loves. And the film began with music when they went to that concert together. They didn't know at the time that it would be their last concert. So music is woven into the film in a really powerful and poignant way, I think. And there was something about that scene of George sitting there and imagining that, imagining what is lost forever and what will never be again. That's what he's seeing. And that's, A really heartbreaking aspect of life, isn't it? You know, when we remember the people we love, and we remember happier times, or we just remember them in a different way. Because now, now when he sees Anne, he sees her, you know, getting bathed, or lying in bed, or crying out in pain or and so seeing her at the piano it's a reprieve almost for him to dream about that have like a daydream about her as she was before and I want to linger on the fact that it's a woman who becomes disabled in the film and it's the man who takes on the role as a caregiver. It's often expected for women to provide care to their husbands when something happens. It usually falls to the woman, but when the woman becomes ill, I have heard stories of men leaving, you know, or like if a woman gets cancer or has, or her health gets really bad or she struggles with her health, often men will leave women Like, it happens. I've heard a lot of stories about it. Men are not able to handle it, or they don't want to handle it, right? It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's not surprising to me. There's this scene in the film where a man brings these groceries to the apartment, and he tells George that he's impressed by how he's handled the situation. The film shows a man standing by his wife, staying with her, not abandoning her. In her, most bu- in her most vulnerable time. And I think that's powerful, actually. I think there are men who would have bailed and run away. And George doesn't do that. He stands by Anne's side, and he takes care of her for as long as he can until he brings in those nurses, but he still doesn't leave her. You know, when you love somebody, you stay, you're present. You find a strength inside yourself, and you keep going, no matter how heartbroken you are. I don't feel strong most days, but I know I can love, and maybe that love is what keeps me going, and maybe love is what kept Anne going for as long as she went, and it kept George going for as long as he did. They did what they could for as long as they could, and love is what kept things together for a little while. I don't feel strong, but I have love inside me, and I think maybe that's what keeps me going from day to day, is the love that I have for my mom. Through this experience, you know, I've learned I can be there for someone. I can be there for her, and I can love, and I can show that love. I do often feel like I'm failing as a daughter. I mean, the thing is, I wake up every day, and I feel like I'm just failing. All the time. Failing as a human being. Failing as a daughter. Like all of it. I just feel like I'm failing. Because my body and my mind won't let me do everything that I need to do. I don't have the energy or stamina to do everything. I'm not always as emotionally generous or present or warm as I should be, but I just try to forgive myself under the circumstances and just keep doing my best. This kind of work, this kind of labor often falls on women. It really does. It's more expected of women than it is of men. And we think men are so strong, but I think women, I think we have something inside of us that is much tougher. We don't leave when things get hard, most of us at least. It does often fall on us to take care of people, and it's not an easy thing to do, but we often do it. And we don't get a lot of love or appreciation for it. It's not easy to be a woman in this world. I'm sure many of you know that who are listening. So much is taken from us and so much is expected. Who is there to care for us? Who cares for the caregiver? Who meets our needs? Who holds us as we cry ourselves to sleep every night? Who puts us back together after we fall apart? No one. Nobody. Only ourselves. Only ourselves, because that's all we have most of the time. That's all I have. Myself, my broken, traumatized, screaming self. That's who I have most days, besides some really kind friends who are there for me. We're alone in the end, aren't we? A lot of us caregivers, we're forgotten. A lot of us don't have anybody to be there for us. You know, we give so much of ourselves, but we're forgotten, And there's nobody there to hold us or protect us or tell us that it's going to be okay. I don't have that. I go to bed alone every night, terrified and stressed and anxious. I have to just soothe myself. You know, we're alone. And isn't Anne alone in her bed? She's alone in her body. Even though we're alone, sometimes love is there too. George is there with her as she moans and cries. As she loses everything, he stays he loves her. That doesn't mean it's easy. There's this scene where Anne won't drink water and she spits it out and he slaps her. It's a very ugly moment, right? But the stress and the anger push him to some to do something he would never normally do. And you can tell how hurt she is by it. It's It's a terrible moment between the two of them that shows he's been sort of pushed beyond his limits and he can't take much more. Sometimes we go through extreme circumstances and experiences that make us into people that we don't recognize, and sometimes we're not the great people that we like to think we are. Sometimes we're not as great and supportive and loving as we want to be, but most of us are doing the best that we can, and when it comes to being a caregiver, a lot of that falls on women. Not always, but a lot of it does, and it's expected of you and There's just often nobody there to take care of you. There's nobody to take care of the caregiver. That's hard. It's hard to feel the loneliness of this and the isolation of this. All you want is to be cared about. Like, I just want somebody to care about me. I'm just so alone for the most part. And it's hard. Your responsibilities can make it hard for you to have a life. Like, it can be hard for you to go out, for you to date, for you to, like, have a bunch of friends or something because you've got to be there for that person and you've got to take care of them. And so you become more isolated because your life is becomes about that other person, and you have to take all of that on. And then it's like, well, what am I going to talk about with anybody? (laughs) Like, my life is not like your average (laughs) 30-something. You know, I'm not out here living the dream or anything like that, and I try really hard to not be resentful of other people's lives. You know, people who get to travel, and they get to do this, and they get to do that. I don't get to have any of that. This is my life every day, and I try really hard to not get angry about it or bitter because I don't want to be that person, but it can be hard to control that. You know, it's hard every day because I have so much on me and so much I have to do. What's even worse is like my mom cries a lot. And so I have to, like, hear her crying. And she does break down at times because the pain, because of the pain she's in and how limited her life has become and everything that's been taken from her and just everything she's going through. And so it's really hard. It's hard to watch her cry and break down. It's just brutal. Like, this film is my life in some ways. Like, the age is different. and You know, there are definitely things that are different about it, but when you have to sit there and listen to your mom break down and cry every day it's just it's hard to put into words what that's like there's nothing I can do and I just have to sit and listen to that I wish I could take it away I wish I could change it I wish I could give everything to her and you just feel so powerless and so powerless it's unbearable it really is And I think that it really affects George a lot when when Anne starts to yell out a lot. And she starts to cry a lot and say she's in pain. And he doesn't know what the pain is. Like what's causing it. And I think that really gets to him. But he is still there for her. He stays. And he's by her side every day feeding her. He talks to Ava about his day, like, you know, putting cream for the bed sores and feeding her and just doing all kinds of things that he can do for her. He remains. He's there and he's present with her. And it takes a great amount of strength to be able to do that. So the end of the film with the smothering scene... I would imagine that it's controversial for some people. I think for Hanukkah, and I think for many people who watch the film, it's seen as like an act of mercy, in a way. And there may be people who disagree with what George did. Anne wasn't given a choice, was she? He didn't ask her, you know, do you want me to do this, right? But she's also not really in her right mind anymore at that point. She's saying gibberish. She's not making any sense. She's basically kind of out of it. I think some people obviously would not like the scene and would object to it. But I do think a lot of people tend to go towards the the idea that it's an act of mercy. It's an act of love to stop this to stop her suffering, to stop what she's going through. And I do think there's a larger discussion to be had about um, assisted suicide and about the right to die. I'm not going to get into all that. I certainly feel like if you have a degenerative disease or you have cancer or you have terminal illness and in your rational right mind you make the choice that you don't want to live with this anymore, then that should be available to you. It's a complicated issue. It really is. Who gets to make that choice, right? Who would get access to something like that? So I'm not gonna go into the complexities of that. It's beyond my capabilities and my skill set. But I do believe, you know, if you're in pain and you want to put that to an end, I think you should have the right to do that. But right now, in most places, that's illegal for you to get somebody else to do it for you, right? I mean, yeah, if you want to commit suicide, you can do that. But once people get to a certain point where they're not in control of their faculties, then it becomes or, or they're just not physically able to do it because they're debilitated or paralyzed, then when you bring another person into it, that's when it gets morally and ethically mur- murky. And so in a lot of places, it's still controversial. It's still taboo for a physician to do it, for a family member to do it. And as we know with Hanukkah, he had an aunt who asked him to do it and he refused. He refused to do that. But he wanted, I think, to make us confront the issue That if you loved somebody and they were in so much pain and you had to see it every single day, what would you do? Could you live with it? Could you do it? I'll be honest, like my dad went through a lot and he was in some suffering Before he passed away. That was also really painful to watch. I was actually thinking about it recently about just some things that happened before he died and like I was 16 and I really couldn't process those things at the time. I think I wrote about them in my diary and I was thinking about them the other day and I was like, I've just been thinking about my dad a lot in general lately, and his death, and even though I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, and I've- I'm very open about it, and I I do talk a lot- I, I do talk about it a lot, but even I- have a lot of unresolved issues with my dad's death. There are even ways that it has affected me that I didn't even realize or understand that it had affected me. And it's only recently that I've started to look back at it and what it did to me and how it's affected things for me, affected relationships and stuff like that. And it's something that I'm actually digging back into and thinking more about of how that trauma has caused some serious issues for me in my life at this point. I'm just saying this because none of this is linear. And I might seem like I have like this deep understanding of, you know, grief and what happened to me with my dad because I talk about it so much. But even for me, there are places that I haven't been able to go and there are things I haven't been able to confront. We're all a work in progress. I'm looking into some of that. There's some unresolved things there, that grief and that pain. But the smothering scene, it's Anne is crying out again and she does seem to be in pain. And George goes in there and he can't, he doesn't know what's causing the pain and he sits down next to her on the bed and he holds her hand. He tells her the story of when he was like a kid and he was younger and he had diphtheria and this story sort of calms her down and as she becomes calmer, he grabs the pillow, he puts it over her face, and then he really leverages his entire body on top of the pillow, and he suffocates her. Her body thrashes and twitches, and then it eventually goes still, and it's a brutal and emotional scene. I cried. I cried, like, when I watched it. I was just shocked at it. I was shocked by the violence of it, the suddenness of it. I had forgot that that was the scene. That's what's weird. I'd seen the film, but I kind of forgot that that was the scene. So I didn't quite know it was going to happen until he did it. And I do think the the consensus is that it's an act of love. Like this final act of love to really put Anne out of her misery. You know, she's in so much pain. She's suffering. What kind of life is that? What kind of life is that? In his mind... I think he feels like this is what he has to do. He has to save her. I think it's almost a way for him to take back some kind of power over the situation. You know, so much has happened. So much has been taken away. He's had to watch her suffer for so long and he's felt so powerless. And I think this is an act in which he takes the power back and he says, I'm not gonna let this continue. I'm gonna stop this because this is what she would want. I also think he believes that this is what she wants. Because she had said earlier, there's no point in going on living. You know, I don't want to go on living. She had said she didn't want to go to the hospital, stuff like that. So I think in his mind, he feels like this is the right thing to do to save her and to help her. This is the merciful thing to do. This is the humane thing. So that and doesn't have to keep suffering, or end up in the hospital where she didn't want to go, or in a nursing home where he can't really see her that much anymore. Sometimes in life, all you have are bad options. All you have are terrible choices. And one is not really that much better than the other. They're all horrible. You know, there's no going back after the stroke. There's no reversing it. She's in pain all day, every day. He can't protect her. He can't save her. He can't wave a magic wand and take all her pain away. The pain isn't going to end. Once she's in the hospital or the home, she's out of his control. Like he can't do anything for her once she's in those facilities. He won't have any control anymore and she won't either. So I think in his mind, this is his sort of last chance to to save her and to end her agony. He feels like that's what he needs to do to help her. You don't know what you would do in that situation. I mean, I can't imagine ever doing anything like that. And Hanukkah was not able to do it. He was actually, this is what's fascinating, Hanukkah himself was put in this situation and he didn't do it. He couldn't do it for himself. You know, it was morally, ethically, you know, he just was not going to go there with her. And so she eventually killed herself. She was able to do that. So it's interesting to me that in real life, Hanukkah didn't do this. But in his film, he has it so that his character does do it. Because I think maybe maybe Hanukkah wanted to go in the film where he couldn't go in real life. Like he couldn't make that moral decision. He couldn't do it. So he took George and George went through with it. And I do think it makes you wonder if if your loved one was going through this and they asked you, to do it, right? Because she had asked kind of like earlier in the film or she had said, you know, I don't want to be alive anymore. And then she starts suffering in this way. What would you do? You know, how would you handle it? I can't imagine doing that. I just can't. So I'm not even saying I necessarily agree with what George did. I think in his mind, it's an act of love. It's an act of saving her. It's taking away her pain and putting an end to that suffering. It's the last thing he can do for her. And it's just heartbreaking. He, he either just lets this continue and just lets her suffer day after day after day, even after she had expressed earlier a wish to die, or he does this. He does this unthinkable, horrible act of killing her. Of killing the woman that he loves. But to him, killing her is loving her. Because it's eliminating her pain and her suffering. But he loses her. He, he was going to lose her either way. He had already lost her. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating. And it makes you put yourself in the shoes of George. Like, what would you do if your parent or your spouse... Or somebody you loved was suffering like that. And they didn't want to endure that. They didn't want to live that way. It's so devastating. It's so brutal and like shocking. You know, when you first go into the film and maybe you don't know anything about it, you don't exactly see it coming because he has this very tender act. Before he grabs the pillow, he's holding her hand. He's telling this childhood story. You really just don't expect him to do that at all. It comes out of nowhere. It's like, it's almost whiplash to go from such a a moment of tenderness of him holding her hand and then him using those same hands of his to smother her with a pillow and to feel her life draining out of her body. For him, it was an act of love. It was the final act of love of what he could give her. Oh God, it kills me kills me. You know, the end of Anne's life is really also the end of George's life. They were enmeshed. They were intertwined with each other. So, after he kills Anne, he's sort of walking around the house. He, he gets the dress and the flowers that we see her in at the beginning of the film, and he's like sitting on a, he's laying on a bed or something, and he hears like the stuff in the kitchen, and he goes in there and he imagines Anne is alive again and that she's washing the dishes in the kitchen. He helps her put her coat on, he puts his on, and they leave the apartment. I find it interesting that he imagines this right that they leave the apartment together because they've really been confined there since her two strokes. They've been confined to the apartment. They haven't. Honestly, the only time that we see them outside of the apartment is when they're at that concert at the beginning of the film. The entire film is set in the apartment. That's it. And there is no world outside of that apartment. People come into the apartment, but George and Anne no longer leave it. That becomes the entire universe in which they exist. And so it's very telling to me, that they leave it in his imagination or his fantasy or whatever. Because like I said earlier, the apartment becomes a tomb. That's what it becomes. It was this place of life and love where they raised their daughter, I'm sure, where they read their books, where they played piano and listened to Bach. All of that's taken away. All of it. And it becomes a tomb for both of them. And so in George's um, imagination and what he imagines, Anne can walk and talk and she can do all the things that she once did. And that's how he wants to see her. That's how he wants to remember her. I cried pretty deeply during this scene. I cried during several scenes of the film, like just sobbing, like really, really intense crying during some of these scenes because they just resonate so deeply for me. They just hit home so much. You know, I thought of my dad when he was alive. I thought of my mom in better, happier times. And it's hard to believe that it's really all gone. You know, it's all gone. Sometimes I feel like my best days are behind me. That's a hard thing to live with, where I feel like my best days are behind me. I don't know what's gonna come next. But like I said, I just live in today. I just live in the day that I'm in. And that's the way that I'll be going forward. But it's like you remember these people and the way that they once were. And when they were happier and when things were better and your life was whole. Or as close to wholeness as it's ever gonna be. And what do you do? What do you do? So I thought that was really... There are so many poignant moments in the film. Like when he imagines her at the piano and then at the end, when he imagines they doing the dishes and then they leave, like they're going to go off to a concert or something like that. I like that. You know, I like to imagine that. They're finally together. They're finally together again. I think that's what he always wanted. He just wanted them to be together again the way that they were. It's such a powerful film. I think it makes you think about love and suffering, the deterioration of the body, you know, illness, the precarious nature of our lives, all of that, you know? I think it brings up so many issues. You know, the big political issue of, like, assisted suicide or something like that. And I do think people are going to have different reactions to that ending. I think there are people who are probably appalled by it. Like, does he have the right to do that to her? And then I think there are other people who feel like, but but what choices did he really have? And the reality of the situation called for something drastic, I think, because he could not keep taking care of her. She may have ended up back in the hospital where she didn't want to go. She may have ended up in a home, you know, and once she's out, once she's out of the apartment, he can't do anything for her she's at the mercy of of the system, of other people, of other medical professionals. I also think in a way he doesn't want her to leave the apartment. Like, this is her home. This is where they lived. And if she has to go into a home or if she has to go into the hospital and leave the apartment, will she ever come back into it alive? Will she ever come back home? She's home. She's with him. They're together. And that's, I think, how he wants things to end, is them together and her her free from that suffering. That's the choice that he makes. And I think he feels like he doesn't have a choice, that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And why should she have to suffer that? Why should she have to go through that agony and that misery when earlier she had expressed a desire? to not be alive anymore, and to not have to go through that, to lose her mobility, and lose everything. These are the difficult truths of life, and I do think here in America, we don't know how to talk about this stuff. We don't know how to talk about the deterioration of the body. We don't know how to talk about not just suicide, or like assisted suicide, but death, of just facing death. Like, we don't know how to do that. We have these false hopes, and you know, and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, she's not going to get better. You can't will it. You can't force it. She's not coming back from it. She's not coming back from that second stroke. It is downhill from there and it's getting progressively worse. Sometimes there is no hope. I remember that's from a Sylvia Plath poem. She has this line, there is no hope, it's given up and sometimes there is no hope and it's not defeatist or negative to say that it's not defeatist to look at a at a situation and acknowledge the reality of it that there is no hope here instead it should be about quality of life right and and different things like that he did not want her to like linger on and to suffer for months or or longer And I think for him, this was the way he could take back some control. And he could do what she had kind of asked him to do earlier in the film when she brought it up. Like, I don't really want to go on living. And he would just kind of was shocked. And he was not gonna help her with that or participate in that. And I think by the end, he's like, I need to save her. I think in his mind, he's saving her. It's just heartbreaking. And Ultimately, I think Hanukkah is exploring what do you do when you watch somebody you love suffer? What kind of suffering does that inflict on you as a caregiver or as a relative or as someone who loves that person? And how does it change you? Because really it changes George and it makes him into somebody he probably never thought he would be. He never thought he would smother his wife and this woman that he loved. But seeing her suffer and going through that experience changed him and did something to him. And he had to face some difficult truths and realities. And it's just heartbreaking. The decision he made or he had to make. I think the film asks us like, how do you deal with that? What do you do? And I don't have answers. I'm watching somebody I love suffer. And I'm just trying to get through it. I guess what I'm trying to do is reduce the suffering as much as I can. That's what I'm... I think that's what I'm trying to do each day. Is like, how can I just make sure that she gets through the day and she's alright. And that I can give her the best quality of life that I'm able to give her within my resources. And within my ability. So that's what I kind of focus on. But um, I know I've gone on about this film a whole lot. So... It's just, um, it's brutal, it's devastating, but I think it asks an elemental question. Like, a very deep, substantive question about the human condition and what it means to watch somebody you love suffer. How do you react to that and what do you do? And this is the choice that George made, was to spare her and to try to save her from it. The best way that he knew how. Very powerful film, unforgettable Definitely, I think one of Hanukkah's best, and I need to watch more of his work, but I also need to watch some musicals and lighter things. Um, He takes you into the depths. He absolutely does. So, I've said everything that I need to say. I think this was a heavy episode for sure. Sometimes things are heavy. Sometimes there's not like a silver lining or there's not like a bunch of jokes or something. Sometimes life is just really hard and you just try to get through it the best you can. It doesn't mean that I don't find moments of beauty or moments of comfort or moments of relief, of course, right? I'm not saying everything is terrible 24-7. It's a hard time in my life and I just wanted to talk a little bit about it and I'll just keep getting through it and I'll keep surviving like I've always survived and that's all I can do. That's all any of us can do. I've talked enough about this film. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Peter, Spunden, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jessie, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.